I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey guys, welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast YouTube channel. I am your host, Heather. I have been podcasting on Tudor England since 2009, which means my show is almost 15 years old. It's almost old enough to drive. Um, this episode or this video is the first half of an author chat we did with Nathan Amin. Nathan Amin is a writer, author who's written several books on Henry Tudor, the House of Beaufort, uh, Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders, and Tudor Wales. Uh, he's an amazing historian. He was featured in the recent Channel 4 documentary on the new evidence around the princes in the tower. He was part of that, uh, that show. And he's here to talk about his reading of the evidence and what he thinks about the princes in the tower. So this is actually the first half of the talk. Um, I'm starting to do more of these author chats for members of the channel and also my Patreon supporters. But since you're watching here, it would be easier to just become a member here. If you want to be part of them live and listen to the full episodes and you know, join in the chats in the future live, you can just click join here to join my channel. That'll get you access to extra episodes, all kinds of extra cool perks like that. My cat has come to say hello. This is Fred. Hey, Freddie. So thank you to Nathan Amin for coming to the channel. You should definitely buy his books. Check out his books, nathanamin.probably.co.uk. I'll put a link. I first found Nathan when I was planning the 2017 Tudor Summit, six and a half, almost seven years ago now. And somebody said, you've got to talk to this, this historian, Nathan Amin. Uh, he's got some new research out on the Beauforts. I was like, ooh, I like, I want to know about that. And so I met him and and he's just such a lovely person. He's he's just such a lovely person. And uh, yeah, and that Tudor Summit then turned into TudorCon. So Nathan Amin has been part of it from the start. One final super quick note. I do have about 100 copies of the Tudor Planner left sitting in my living room after we sent out the crowdfunding one. Um, this is the 2024 Tudor Planner. If you want to tutorify your 2024, um, this is what it looks like. That's Christine de Pizan on the back who wrote the book, The City of Ladies, uh, which advocated that women can be educated. Crazy idea. This is the weekly layout, uh, has a habit tracker, lots of room for writing notes and things. It's the monthly layout. Anyway, you can see photos of everything, a video of everything, stickers at tutorfair.com which is my shop, tutorfair.com. They make a great gift for you or the tutor pile in your life. Thanks so much for watching. Let's hop right over to Nathan Amin. Nathan, I'm so glad you're here. You have written some fantastic books specifically on The Pretenders, right? And um, you tutor Wales um, and the Beaufort family. You Your books are fantastic. And you've been doing things with me and the Tudor Con and this whole world for a while. And I, I've watched you get huge and blow up and, and it's just really exciting. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. I think you probably were one of the first people to give me a platform. So I'm, I'm always going to come back to you. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think about this? What's your, re what's your response? You were on the documentary. 
they didn't give you quite as much face time as I would have liked. But they, did, they, they didn't. You... There seems to be quite a bit of a misunderstanding, I think, amongst some people how documentaries seem to work. Um, so I have tried to do some posts recently to try and give some detail. But I mean, we filmed for about 67 hours in total. I spent the entire day with the crew and with Rob. Um, I mean, Rob in the UK is a celebrity, you know, so that in itself is quite intimidating. Uh, he's my mother's favourite. My mother's got a bit of a crush on him. Oh, so that was, it, it was a very big day to meet him and be introduced to him. Um, but you spend that much time with somebody, you very quickly build up a really close rapport, um, especially when the majority of the day was just me and him walking and talking, not, you know, not, not off camera, just for like back, back, back in shots and so on. And you're almost, you're talking to each other so that on camera, it looks like you're engaged in historical debate. But really, you're just talking to each other as, uh, you know, how are you? How are you doing? How's your family? And things like that. So we, we built up a really good rapport. Um, and we did film for about six hours based on everything to do with this case. Um, now, I did end up with just the one minute and 30 seconds in the documentary. Um, the, the director did mention that, you know, a lot of what I've said had been pulled. That simply is, um, I mean, it's going to be for two reasons. And it's not really, uh, you know, it's, it's not any nefarious reasons. It's just that a lot of what I said would have unpicked the narrative the documentary is trying to go to. And right. secondly, there just isn't enough time to put everyone in. I mean, you always film hours worth of material on these documentaries for hopefully a minute even. Sometimes you don't even get in the documentary. So I've got no issues with okay. what happened. Yeah. It, it wasn't my documentary. It wasn't my narrative to tell. Um, right. But there we go. All right. So what? So we got that out. What What did you think about it? What did you tell me? Give me your spiel now. <laughs> well, well, I mean, first and foremost, we have to admit that whatever one thinks of Philippa Langley, and a lot of people do have strong opinions of Philippa, um, you know, she's got her pursuit to exonerate Richard III, which she passionately follows. You cannot ignore. You cannot ignore her. You know, Philippa is a big name and a big person in this world. Um, I personally think that she has commendable focus, uh, and she's definitely leaving behind a legacy that most of us would would love. I mean, on a personal note, I really enjoy her company. I think that's quite important to get across. I also think, and not many people, not many mainstream historians will agree with me here, and they certainly haven't this week. Is I think it's important that. The study of Richard III and perhaps the revisionist angle, which, you know, I'm on record, I don't really agree with. Uh, I don't really agree with some of the findings, but I think it is important that they definitely do deserve perhaps a seat at the mainstream table. You know, Shakespeare definitely, uh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare might have been a monster, but Richard III definitely is not the monster that Shakespeare has written him out to be. Uh, Thomas More has a hugely flawed account of him. I don't think it's a problem that we now have the odd Ricardian leaning book podcast documentary available. It can't all just be the traditional narrative of which I am one. So I think that's important. Now we, it's nice to have this documentary. A lot of people have criticized it, they destroyed it online and so on. But it wasn't that long ago that, the, in this country at least, the Lucy Worsley had a Prince in the Tower documentary that was very much following quite a flawed version of the traditional story. So she's just now equaling up the narrative. So I think 
I think it's good that they've done this documentary. I think it's good that they've done this book, which I've nearly got uh, to the end of. Do I agree with the conclusions? Do I agree with the findings? I mean, no surprise, but no, I don't. But it's not, I don't understand why it's a problem that we've got this theory and this, this version of history thrown into the mix. Right. Um, you know, it, it's got to be expected from their point of view as well that this is going to be critiqued. And it's going to be, and it has been critiqued quite harshly in many cases. Uh, I mean, I'll probably do a book review at some point, so I might throw my thoughts into the mix. But it's, it's interesting. Anything, anything, Prince in the Tower that reaches this wide an audience is brilliant. I mean, in the UK, this documentary got viewed by one point three million people. It's Amazing. it's insane that we've got a documentary that's reached that much that the wider audience. Obviously, I don't think perhaps it's had the reaction that the Ricardians would have liked. Uh, but it's definitely the wonders for me and my uh, my history and my book sales. I, I've got to be pleased about that. So go yeah. on, Philip. <laughs> go on, Philip. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. There's all of opinions, not all, but lots of opinions start out unpopular and we have those discussions and, you know, a lot it's not necessarily all on this side. And it's not necessarily all. Richard III was not a monster. And and he did a lot of really good governance that we were finding out about now, thanks to people like her and, and Matt and then, you know, the, the all of that. Um, so there you go. But uh, let's, well, let's just talk really quickly about the, like, what the traditional, you're talking about this traditional view. For people who don't know the traditional view, the 32nd, Richard killed the princes. That's like the quick yeah, I mean, 1483, uh, 9th of April, 1483, Edward IV dies. He leaves behind two children. Uh, Richard III takes custody of the children and suddenly it's declared that the children were illegitimate. They've been deposed. Richard III takes the crown for himself. Uh, some would say he used your crown. Some would say he was offered the crown. Um the great the great division in this in this um period but then by the end of that summer the princes are placed in the tower of london and they they have disappeared uh traditional narrative is that they were murdered at the behest of their uncle richard and buried beneath a stairway in the tower of london now that is the hardcore traditional story and many of us veer off from that basics i mean i don't think they were buried beneath a stairwell i think they were killed and I do think they were thrown in the Thames. Other people think they weren't killed at all, or perhaps they were killed by Henry the Seventh, the Duke of Buckingham, the Cookie or Margaret Monster, Beaufort somebody else. Get thrown in there as well. I, I purposely did not mention her name. Um, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, you know, so that is the the basic gist of the traditional narrative, and it's a very compelling argument. You know, the boy's uncle has captured them, thrown them in the tower, and they've disappeared. I mean. You know, Auckland's razor straight away flashing there. And at the time, people were wondering what happened to them, right? Like, they're, it, so if he knew what had happened to them, or if he knew that they were alive, one would think he would bring them out and say, they're here, you can stop talking about what happened to them because they're right here. Yeah, so it's very interesting. So, like, there's arguments from, like, a, a Ricardian viewpoint that... um Richard III did not display the boys because he had let them slip away abroad uh, to live out their times or to come back as the pretenders. 
Um, traditionalists would say that the reason he didn't display the bars is because he'd killed them, and therefore mm. he couldn't display them. Um, going back to the Ricardian side, surely if you kill the previous king, the whole point is you display it to stop any um, any any rebellions. Myself, I believe they were killed during the reign of Richard III, but I believe that they were thrown into the Thames. So obviously, if they're in the Thames, you can't take that back. You can't say, let's display the boys. The fact that Richard didn't display the boys is ultimately what caused them a lot of problems, and it is what caused his downfall. Henry VII, when he becomes king, he learns a valid lesson there. He does take Edward Deal of Warwick into custody, but he keeps him. And when a rebellion kicks off later down the line, he's able to display Edward Deal of Warwick to try and take a lot of the steam out of the rebellion. Um, I personally just think that Richard couldn't display the boys because, you know, they were at the bottom of this of the river somewhere. Why do you think that? I'll tell you why I think that. It's because I've watched so many mafia movies. It's the obvious thing to do. Um, if, if you kill somebody, you don't hang on to the bodies. You don't bury them uh, in your back garden. You get rid of them. Um, now, the historical source that I have that suggests this is a Welsh chronicle was written about 50 years later. So already some people will be saying, well, 50 years later, that's not near contemporary. Hey, we take what we can get in this period. Um, but this Welsh chronicle does account for that the boys were put into a, into a chest. Um, they were taken out to a part of the Thames estuary called the Black Deep, uh, which is just where the river starts to meet, meet, meet the ocean. And they were thrown overboard. And nobody apart from the guy in charge of that chest knew what was in the, um, you know, what was the cargo taken. It just makes so much sense. I mean, again, look at look at the look at the modern mafia. They're burying people in lakes in Nevada and so on. That is exactly what you're going to do. And it answers why nobody has ever produced any bodies. I know we have the ends. I find that theory completely discredited. I think it's so unlikely the bones in the urn are the boys and I think if we ever do get DNA testing and science is able to actually do this testing it's going to show very quickly that they're not the boys but you're not burying them 10 feet deep in the Tower of London it's quite an absurd non-realistic theory for me. Interesting okay so let's I mean I know you have your stuff you want to talk about but I want to also ask you about going through the the different documents that they lay out in the in the documentary and what you think of them as sources. And it, it was my thing as I was watching it, I just kept thinking, well, yeah, maybe that is from the time period. Maybe that is that maybe it does refer to Richard, the Duke of York. But of course, because he was pretending to be he's not going to then sign it, Perkin Warbeck. So the fact that it's signed Richard, like that doesn't tell me any like that's part of the conspiracy. So I don't know, like I I wonder what your take on it, your take is on all of these different like receipts and and the different the four I think there were four documents that they lay out and we can start with like the receipt for the um munition or the mercenaries to be given and then um you know some of the other things later but like what kind of overall what do you think about these things so I mean Dr Helen Carr did a really good tweet uh last week where she said something like uh one of the hardest jobs as a historian is to be aware of your own bias when -hmm. dealing with evidence um, and the first person you need to critique is yourself. Now, obviously, that can be taken to 
uh, you know, Philippa and the the Richard Third Society, where they are obviously not perhaps dealing well with their own bias. They have gone into this wanting to find the evidence. They've gone into wanting to find answers. But on the other side, I'm a natural skeptic to this. So I'm also dealing with my bias. Anything they presented, I don't want to believe it. Uh, or, or, you know, something that is, is, skept- is skeptical. So we're having to deal with all of that, first of all. I think the Missing Princess Project have said that they spent seven years of this investigation doing an intelligence gathering, and they have now proven that the sons of Edward IV, the princes in the tower, have survived the reign of Richard III. That is a big, big, bold statement, and I don't think it does stand up to scrutiny, my own bias, etc., not to stand it. So, I mean, yeah, you, you mentioned that document that's signed by uh, Richard, Richard of York, Richard of England, uh, mm-hmm. first and foremost. So I think there were a couple of documents at play. Um, one we've got what they call the Gelderland document. It is, um, it's a witness statement that's presented to show as proof of life that Perkin Warbeck was, in fact, Richard of York. And that's because this is a four-page document um, basically a biography it's detailing what happened to him and there is some glaring issues with that first of all i mean first of all if you're telling a lie if you are being an imposter if you're telling a story you are going to leave behind a paper trail and you are going to try and explain exactly why you are this person if this is perkin warbeck and he's being asked by his auntie and his supporters in Burgundy to write down his life story. He's not going to sign it. Perkin. Richard of England, a.k.a. Perkin. You know, he, he, he's going to stick to this story. Um, it's, it's a difficult one, because I, I think this document was rediscovered by a lady called Natalie, Natalie Nyman. I've met Natalie. She's part of the Dutch research group, and she's a fantastic woman who has the utmost of my respect. Um, I mean, she, she's one of the stars of this process. You know, she's been working really hard to get and hold these documents. So the document itself is fantastic. It really is. And I was amazed to actually see it on 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 parchment, on screen. But yeah. this isn't new information. The fact that there's a document given a biography of somebody in the name Richard of England, we already knew that because at the same time period, we have already the Dendermond letter, which I've written about extensively in my book, which came out a couple of years ago. It is, it's, it's just a biography. Now, this new letter, the Gelderland document, is a little bit more detailed and it has a few more names, um, which is definitely interesting because now we can go down and try and look to find out who some of these people are involved in. But at the end of the day, it still isn't proof of life that Richard of England, Richard of York, was signing this letter it's just that we know that somebody who wanted us to believe they were that person has signed that letter. I mean, the fact of a letter that says Richard of England, which they're passing off as proof of life. In 1991, Diana Klein wrote a book literally called Richard of England with a signature on the front of the book. So again, it's not new information. It's definitely not um, proof of life. We, we have to question the story told anyway by Perkin Warbeck slash Richard in the story. Why was he allowed to leave the Tower of London? Why would Richard III let his nephews 
leave the Tower of London. From a security perspective, that makes no sense because then he wouldn't be able to control the boys. He wouldn't be able to prevent them becoming a focus of rebellion or present them when accusations grew louder. Uh, you do what Henry VII did. You keep hold of them and chuck them in the tower until the end of their lives. Um, it's fascinating, this new evidence that gives us the names involved, Lord Howard and Henry and Thomas Percy. But by the time this document is written in 1493, all are dead, conveniently, so they can't be questioned. Um, similar to the people involved in the famous uh, pre-contract story that says that their father was married uh, before he'd married their mother. All the people involved in that were conveniently dead. But more importantly for me, the story is that Perkin Warbeck slash Richard claims in this document that they were taken out of the Tower of London and sent to France to live. Now, why the hell would Richard III send two of his nephews to his enemy to live amongst his enemy when they were already plotting to send another pretender back named Henry Tudor? If the French know that they have two Yorkish princes living amongst them, they wouldn't have sent Henry Tudor across the water um, to invade. They would have gone, well, let's just use the real princes. So I think that document, which is issued with the claim of it being decisive evidence, not decisive at all. We just know somebody signed the letter called Richard of England, which you would. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I just came into my head, like a, a Ricardian might say, well, He'd already made them, uh, God, I'm having a brain issue, um, illegitimate. That's the word. He'd already made them illegitimate, so he didn't necessarily need to kill them. So that's why maybe he would let them go. How would you answer that? Uh, very simply, when you're made illegitimate, it's just a piece of paper. It means nothing. It can be reversed by any parliament. During the 15th century, we had Henry IV, uh, mm -hmm. Edward IV, Henry VI, the second time around, and Henry VII all become kings while subject to a parliamentary attainter. They simply became kings and then reversed documents. And obviously, as shown, look how easy Henry VII ultimately reversed the prince's illegitimacy. That is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. They were, regardless of whether he made them illegitimate or not, they were always going to be a threat to Richard III. And it's one of the things I hate the most in this discussion is that they were not a threat because of this. Uh, illegitimacy. Okay. It's it's nonsense. Elizabeth the first was illegitimate. Mary the first was illegitimate. Like oh, there, there we go. Yeah, I mean, but, but, but I never say them because we're going past my time. Right, time. right, right, right. But, but yeah, exactly. It's it doesn't matter, you know, basically. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I just wanted to put that out there because I could imagine somebody saying somebody saying that in their head. So, um, and then there was this receipt that was another piece of evidence that was given. Um. And uh, and that then leads into the coronation in Dublin, which I was really confused about because I thought Lambert Simnel was uh, pretending to be Edward the Sixth, and that's like why Henry brought him. I'm I'm really like confused about that whole timeline because they seem to make it seem as if it was Edward the Prince, and I thought yeah. it was Edward Warwick, Duke of Warwick or Earl of Warwick. So yeah, can you set me can you set me straight on that? Uh, I'll try to. Uh, right, okay, so first of all, let's look at this proof of life that has been discovered. Mm -hmm. uh, they're calling it the Lille receipt. It's basically an, incred it's an incredible find by a chap called Albert of the Dutch Research Group. Um, it, it's, a, it's, well, it's, it's exactly what it's called. It's a receipt found in Lille 
dated to, I think, December 1487. It's a payment for 400 pikes um, to be provided for the invasion of Margaret of York's nephew. And in the receipt, that nephew is called the son of King Edward. Now, that would suggest it is Edward V, the missing prince in the tower. I believe this document is completely authentic. I believe, you know, it's not a, a forgery or anything of the kind. Um, and it is hugely compelling. If you take this document by itself, you're going to go, well, that's surely proof of life that Edward V was living uh, four years after he disappeared. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but. First of all, there's evidence during this time of pretenders or claimants to the throne being misidentified to make them seem more important. Mm -hmm. In 1484, Henry Tudor was in France and he was trying to become the King of England. The French wanted to make his claim look more important and better than it was. So they started calling him the son of Henry VI. Now, Henry Tudor was the nephew, the half-nephew of Henry VI. And he had no blood relation, uh, blood claim through Henry VI. But the French wanted to call him a son of Henry VI because that would make the French give more money uh, and more military to them. But it's absurd. It's nonsense. And everybody knew Henry Tudor was not the son of Henry VI. So they very quickly dropped it. It was ridiculous. Could something similar have been happening? Uh, there is clearly an imposter um, or somebody in Burgundy at this time wanting to invade England, um, mm. or his supporters are putting him forward to support England, uh, invade England. Would it have been better for them to have called him Edward V, the son of King Edward, rather than one of his other nephews? So I think the, the little receipt is brilliant, it's compelling, but it could be explained away very simply. Now, the major reason it can be explained away is because of the context of this period, so, which brings us around to why you're confused about what's taking place in Dublin. So the lambert Simnel affair, the lambert Simnel invasion, the traditional story, which I still think stands up, is that Henry VII has a legitimate Yorkist prince in the tower, Edward the Earl of Warwick, a cousin of the princes in the tower. Now, in 1486, there is a small rebellion against Henry VII, uh, led by the Stafford brothers, and they are going around waving the Warwick family banner, and they're chanting Warwick, Warwick in the streets. But nobody joins them. Nobody's interested. They haven't got a leader. They haven't got a figurehead. Warwick's in the Tower of London. The rebellion fell apart. A couple of months later, 1487, there are now rumours that this conspiracy has started up again there are people attacking some of Henry VII's uh, men, servants, in the streets, shouting out the name Warwick, Warwick, Warwick. And now, Henry VII hears that this conspiracy actually does have a boy at the head of it who's claiming to be the Earl of Warwick. So there's that, first of all. We have evidence during the time of how important the Warwick name was the conspiracy now leaves Oxford and it crosses over to Ireland and Dublin specifically. Why Dublin? Well, the Earl of Warwick's father, the Duke of Clarence, that idiot allegedly got drowned in some wine, he was born in Dublin. So when 
a rebellion, a, a conspiracy turns up in Dublin and they say to the Irish, we have the son of your Clarence. He is the real uh, claim to the English throne. The Irish very quickly go, we're all in. We're going to crown him. Um, of course, we love Warwick. We love Clarence. We're going to take down the English king. Go back to London. Henry VII parades the real Warwick around London. He goes around to all of his men. He takes him to St. Paul's Cathedral. He goes, behold, this is Warwick. So the conspiracy falls apart in England straight away, but it doesn't in Ireland. So a few, a few things at play here. Uh, why the hell is Henry VII parading the real Warwick if we're now supposed to believe that this imposter boy was not pretending to be Edward of Warwick, he actually was Edward V? That doesn't make any sense, because why parade Warwick? Uh, why do we have English sources at the time and Flemish sources abroad all saying that this conspiracy was in the name of a son of Clarence? Um, why do we have no other evidence whatsoever apart from this receipt to show that this conspiracy was um, in the name of Edward V, not Edward of Warwick? And finally, we are asked, why would the Irish crown a boy in Ireland, which is surely a great crime against their religion, to crown an imposter? Well, not if they generally believe that they did have a real prince amongst them. You know, of course they would do everything by um, by the religious rituals of the day. I just... There's too much context around this time that this was all a conspiracy in favour of Edward of Warwick and not Edward V. The receipt right. that receipt that muddy the waters a little bit, and it does give this theory more legs, but it's definitely not proof of life. It's definitely not compelling, decisive evidence that settles the case. Um, nowhere near. Yeah. Also, like, could it have been a, a typo? Like, that's it. Like, I'm thinking this is, I'm thinking who wrote this? Like, it's an accountant. It's a person in accounts. Maybe they were just, like, I could imagine them sitting there at their desk with their pen or their scroll, obviously, and, like, being told, okay, write this receipt out for this, and it's for this, and okay, I'll write a receipt, and, like, not even necessarily knowing. Like, is that a thing that could have happened? Yeah, I, I don't see why. I mean, very famously, uh, Margaret Beaufort, when recording the dates of birth of one of her grandchildren, uh, the future Henry VIII, the certain Henry VIII, in her book of hours, she got the year date wrong. I mean, you know, these people get things wrong, and they don't have tipbacks, they don't have erasers. It's a lot more difficult for them to erase it. It could just be a misunderstanding. It could be what I said earlier, that um, they were actually trying to bolster the, the imposter's um, claim by saying he was Edward V. We, we simply don't know, which means it's not proof of life. It means it's not decisive if all of these things can be explained away. I think for this theory, it takes a lot of faith to believe that Edward V survived 1483. Uh, he existed for a couple of years abroad. He managed to go to Ireland in 1487. He invaded England, roughly around 16 years old at this point. And then we're asked to believe that he fought at the Battle of Stokefield in 1487 against Henry Tudor's army. And one of two things seems to have happened, according to the theory. One, he was killed and then replaced with a little imposter boy 
who is taken to London and we're, and we're told this is Lambert Simnel, go and work in the royal kitchens, or who is allowed to live out his days in Somerset as a chap called John Evans, uh, which is one of the other latest theories of his survivor. I mean, it's you're asking us to believe a lot there. doesn't mean it couldn't potentially have happened, but surely the most obvious um, thing that happened is the traditional story, which is there was an imposter boy created by a little cabal to pretend to be the Earl of Warwick, who was in the Tower of London and was the real Yorkist heir at the time. I So I know we're at half past and I want to be mindful. I said this would take about half an hour, so I want to be mindful of your time. Um, I just wonder, can you tell me why do you, and then I also want you to plug your book, but do you, can you tell me why you think people have so like why this moves people so so much so long after the amount of emotion that people have invested in in this um why do you think that is nobody wants to believe the children were murdered uh mm-hmm. obviously the, the whole richard the third thing is very emotive um first and foremost you know i think that uh richard the third cardinism etc has been driven mainly by people um, being attracted to an underdog of history, uh, yeah. which is ironic that the real Richard III was anything but an underdog um, during the time. But, you know, people have an interest in Richard III for their own reasons, and obviously it extends to the, the case of Princes in the Tower. It's a whodunit. It's a murder mystery. It's the greatest mm-hmm. mystery we have. It's up there with um, Jack the Ripper, uh, possibly JFK, you know, depending on depending if there's any documents relating to that that have yet to be released. Um, it's it's a royal conspiracy whodunit. That is always going to, involving children, it's always going to, to move people. It's always going to um, attract people with their theories. I mean, in modern times in Britain, we did have the disappearance of a little girl called Madeleine McCann. And to this day, we don't know what happened to her. And there's still, you know, there's a lot of theories um, and a lot of research and a lot of uh, fake sightings and false sightings regarding uh, the little girl. We don't know simply what happened to her. You know, it's it's a bit of a, a cold case itself. This is just adding all of the elements of history, emotion, and, you know, and it's never and it's never going to be solved, regardless of what we want to call this latest uh, revelation of this case solved. It's not ever going to be solved. Um, which is only going to ever fuel the discussion. It's why we're here talking about it now. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Um, okay, so where you have a really great, great book on the Tudor Pretenders. That's like a really good. I mean, all of your books are great, but where else can people read your books? What tell me? Plug your books. Plug my books. Okay, so uh, currently, yeah, I think Henry the Seventh and the Tudor Pretenders is the book that's at the moment getting a bit of the attention. Um. I do know it's on, for the American listeners, it's on the Barnes & Noble uh, website, so I think it can be delivered within America. Um, and it's on Amazon. And it's on Amazon, and it's on bookshop.org. Um, and it, has, it does seem to be a bit of a stock issue at the moment. Um, so if, if, you look at, if you look at Amazon and it's not there, please don't give up. Please do go to uh, an alternative website and continue your pursuit of my... Um, <laughs> What, what did you call it? Wonderful book. Oh. Um, and yeah, and like I said, my book has caught a lot of um, interest at the moment because 
my job in that book is not to tell you if Warbeck and Simnel are real or not. I have my own opinions and I put across the case. Um, but it's not my job to really tell you who were, who they were in this book. It's to tell you what happened. It is a tale from 1483 to the end of Henry VII's life. It features invasions, conspiracies, murder, um, heartbreak. It's got everything because a hell of a lot of things happened during that 20-year period. Um, and it's just a fascinating story. I mean, there were invasions. There were battles. It features the whole Margaret of York and Warbeck over in Austria trying to get the support of um, of Maximilian and so on. And I think it's... I, I'm trying to picture it at the moment as being if you should definitely read uh, Philip Langley's book. I'm a huge proponent of doing that. I think it's, I think it's an admi admirable read. I mean, I'm definitely impressed by how method methodical it is and the chronological layering out of sources. As a, as a, as a study guide, her book is um, it's invaluable. But also, you know, to understand your own argument, you have to read widely and sure. scrutinize accounts that hold opposing views. So I am saying at the moment, by all means, everyone should read Philippa Langley's book. You should also read my book. Uh, if you if you if you are anti Ricardian, uh, read Philippa Langley's book. If you are anti the traditional narrative, read my book. Read them both. You'll be they're going to complement each other greatly. And for that matter, Matthew Lewis's Survival of the Princes in the Tower. Yeah. Or in fact, all of the books of the Princes in the Tower. You know, you've got to read them all. You can't just read one one book and and think that's that's done. Read widely, confront your bias, expand your knowledge, and Hopefully, I'll make some money to feed my cats. There you go. Man, I love it. People get getting educated and your cats being fed. It, like, you can't, you can't argue with that. They need the fancy food, too. They need the good stuff, not Sainsbury's brand. Yeah. You've got to <laughs> give them the fancy Mark Spencer stuff. Or... Over, over here, they're called dreamies. I think somebody said oh. in America, they're called temptations, maybe. Temptations, but... yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got it. The cats need some dreamies. Um, all right. We had one chat here by Mary. Hi, Mary. Um, she said, Nathan, I read both of your books. They were great. Any new book in the future? Yeah, uh, I finished my next book, uh, which at the moment might be my last book. I'm in a, I'm in a semi-retirement at the moment because I've run out of things to write about. Uh, it's called The Son of Prophecy, The Rise of Henry Tudor. It will again cover the Princess in the Tower. Um, it's basically a 300-year epic covering the Welsh Tudor family's rise from North Wales from being Welsh rebels to English kings. If you like my House of Beaufort book, it's same deal, but the other side of the family tree. Um, and I think it's good. Uh, awesome. It, it's covering, you know, Owen Tudor, the Welshman who got a queen, Jasper Tudor, hero of the Wars of the Roses, Henry Tudor's time in France uh, in exile, and how the hell did he become king of England? So, um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be... Yeah. A good one. And in theory, all three of my books will then end up as being a bit of an unofficial trilogy. Um, you know, I've got the Beaufort family, I've got the Welsh Tudor, and then I've got Henry VII's reign in the middle. So I'm looking forward to that. Next July, that'll be good. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, I hope it's not your last. Um... <laughs> I, 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 I need ideas. and I don't know what I've got at the moment. You know what I wish you would write about? Uh, well, I wish somebody would write about this, but because you know, because you're an expert in Wales, 
like I love those books like by that Edward Rutherford writes those biographies of places where he'll just like be in one place, you know, like he has like one on the new forest. And I think you should write one of those on like some area in Wales because I I devour those things. The problem with Wales is that we might have something, one major event happen and then nothing else happened for hundreds of years. Well, okay. That book on the New Forest, it, I just finished. Well, I didn't, I didn't read it recently. It, I don't know. It skipped 600 years at one place. So anyway, you know, you just yeah, maybe, maybe some historical fiction could be in your future. Yeah, maybe. Um, I did, I did, I have penned a couple of, um, a couple of paragraphs in the last couple of weeks of a fiction book. Um, like I've got a really great idea, but you know, fiction is a whole different thing. And um, I, I can see the idea in my head. It's just a, just having the talent to even or, or the planning to try and make it unfold a little bit but who knows uh, uh, I, I, i'll get bored eventually you know okay so, and the and cat need more dreamies yeah i'll get bored eventually and then i'll have to start writing because there's only so much um i'm in my reading phase at the moment there you go yeah. there you go all right. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you to Deanna and Mary, Dina and Mary for showing up and um, and buy Nathan's books. That's all I can say. So thank you. Thank you so much. All right. I appreciate you so much. Um, we'll talk soon. Have a good holiday season. Bye.